In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Mary, seat of wisdom, pray for us. Mary, tower of ivory, pray for us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. And thank you all for coming out tonight. Uh, it should be a, a good talk where we kind of go through some of the basics of prayer. Because recently, for the year of the Eucharist and beyond, I started a weekly holy hour at 6 p.m. here in Sheffield on Fridays. And since then, I've had some folks ask me, you know, what, what, what do you do during adoration? How do you, how do you fill up that time? Uh, St. John the Baptist, he taught his disciples how to pray. Jesus' followers wanted to know how to pray from him, and nothing's really new. People still ask uh, me, the, the priest, how, how to pray. And so this talk is going to try to help you do that. And it's also going to be a talk that's kind of like an onion or an ogre like Shrek. It's going to have layers. Since the most basic definition of prayer is asking fitting things from God, thank you, St. John Damascene, that means during adoration, there isn't any one particular way to pray. Uh, and this is where we have to start with the, the bread and butter of prayer, and then we can move on to what it means to do a holy hour. Of course, there are traditional prayers that we say together, traditional hymns that we begin and end adoration with, uh, but the priest, he should give always ample time for people to pray in silence. But whenever you pray, preparation is key. Because your prayer, it actually starts before you're praying. Uh, it starts before you even utter or think one word. You want to make sure you're in the proper state before you approach God. You know, watching an action movie with a lot of explosions will probably agitate you or, you know, lots of fast music. So you probably shouldn't do that right before you pray. What's better is to give yourself a little bit of quiet time before you get into the prayer itself. And that way, you know, your body settles down and it's easier for you to be in God's presence. Uh, that also helps to limit distractions. Stability is good with prayer because it helps you build a habit. Right? We are, we're really made for habits as humans. We all have you know, our little routines during the day, whether it's a morning routine or a night routine. Uh, and it should be the same thing when we talk with God. We should find a similar time each day to have that conversation with him. Not necessarily a chronological time, uh, like a point on the clock, but perhaps more of a chirographical time, uh, which is you know a period of the day that's always the same, maybe before you start an activity. Maybe you don't go to bed at the same time every night. But if you say your prayers before you, you go uh, and get into bed, then right you're, you're, you're praying at the same time, and your body kind of knows that when, when you're in that state, you know, okay, it's, it's time, yeah, I'm, I'm almost ready for bed, it's time to talk with God. Sometimes using the same place can also help you when you pray, if you have a, a quiet area in your house. And uh, yeah, women also will find the ones who veil with the mantillas, that they're helpful in focusing them, uh, not only because they cover a little bit of the woman's peripheral vision, and that literally blocks some distractions, but even putting it on her head, right? She can get used to that motion. And if she does that every time before she prays, then, you know, guess what? You know, her body 
knows what's coming next, that she should be relaxing, that she should kind of get in the God zone, right? Uh, because we're body-soul composites, what we do to our body will affect our soul and vice versa. Uh, it's, it's always this, this kind of play with us, that our souls don't exist in a vacuum, that they're tied to our bodies, and one always affects the other. Prayer itself can be done in three methods. There's verbal, there's mental, and there's contemplative. Since there will be others praying alongside you, you should moderate the volume of your voice so you don't distract others when you pray verbally. Because verbally is just that, you're saying the prayers out loud. Mental prayer is quiet, so no worries about noise there. The only noise that you have to worry about with mental prayer are the distractions that can hit you. That's kind of the noise that's already in your head, or that might just kind of come from nowhere. Contemplation is a prayer of quiet, and it doesn't mean that you empty yourself of everything. It means that you're filled with God. So usually emptying yourself beforehand leads directly into this, because then it's easier to focus on the Lord. And in this third prayer, contemplative, God is the one who directs it. Right? So we can open ourselves up to this prayer, but we're not the ones who control it. It's kind of God who's in the driver's seat. Those who say they do a certain amount of contemplative prayer are referring to how they open themselves up uh, to this prayer by being quiet, by resting in the Lord. Think of this prayer as ringing God's doorbell, and then we're the ones who wait for him to arrive. We will, he'll greet, greet you in his time, and he'll greet you in his way. Uh, so it's important to right, take those steps. But it's always, God always meets the soul exactly where we need to be met and in exactly the way that's going to best help us. Genuine contemplative prayer is actually rather rare, well, at least more rare than it should be. But what, we should what should we expect when we live in a world filled with so many distractions and they're all kind of vying and fighting for our time? But regarding verbal and mental prayer, they can be either rote or extemporaneous. Rote prayers are the ones you memorize. They can be from sacred scripture or tradition or both. The words, they're tried, they're true. They've been used for centuries and through the ages. And if you don't know what to say to God, if you're kind of, you're here and you're kind of stuck, you can always fall back, back on those rote prayers, the ones that you know and begin there. The Our Father is the perfect prayer after all. It's given to us by our Savior himself. You can't do much better than that. Extemporaneous prayers are ejaculatory prayers. Your heart launches them up to heaven. You can make up your own words, but your words, you should try to make them as fitting as you can and always have that sort of proper level of respect in relation to God. Um, and so, yeah, keeping that in mind, you can move on to something like Lexio Divina. And that's where you're praying with sacred scripture. It's another way to pray, and it can be done in any of the above three categories, right? You can pray the scriptures out loud. You can pray them and just read them and have them going in your head. Or you can, you know, pray with them and then try to understand their meaning. You can see how the passage expands your knowledge of God. What new does it tell you about your Savior? And then you try to apply that meaning to something in your life. Uh, at other times, you can just simply offer the words of sacred scripture up to God. Just give him that time. Because the sacred scripture, it really relates to pretty much anything that we're going through. If you've been naughty, you can pray something like Psalm 50, and you can ask for God's mercy. If you're sorrowful, 
You can begin with the book of Job. You can look to the strength that this man had and God's grace working in his life and ask for some of that yourself. If you read something like the Acts of the Apostles, you can rejoice in God's great works if you yourself are feeling joyful. You know, you're not limited to those passages for those types of prayers, but it helps you if you know a little bit more about the Bible. So you know where to go. You know what kind of, if you're in a certain mood, what book to go to, what, what verses to read from that book. After you read a passage in Lexio Divina, you can let it simmer, as one of my professors and priest formators used to tell us. So you, you don't focus on yourself, but you focus on God. You can just kind of rest in the words. Uh, think about what you read and, and just sort of see, see where the prayer goes. He is leading you. And you have to practice being aware of God, right? being attentive to what God is doing within you. It, can, it takes some practice. It takes some time. Uh, but once you get the hang of it, uh, this prayer becomes very natural to you. Having gone over the different ways to pray, let's talk about the four different reasons to pray. There's supplication, glorification, reparation, and thanksgiving. Supplication is what you think it is. It's asking God for something that will help you or others' salvation. If you want to pray supplicative prayers as well as you can, you should only be praying for those things that will help you attain heaven, uh, which means that if you pray for something that you think is good, like a thousand bucks, and God doesn't give you a thousand bucks, well, it's probably for the better of your soul that you didn't get that money, right? So he's always giving us, he's always answering us. Sometimes it's no, uh, but he's always giving us what we need. And, and directing us in the right path. Uh, everything that you ask for that isn't going to help you to heaven, it's a, it'll hurt you in the end. It's a distraction. Uh, so it's always important to kind of think about, okay, why am I praying? What do I need from the Lord right now? Or what do I think I need? And even then, he can, he can help uh, give you the, the proper thing, even if you don't quite know how to ask for it. The poor, excluding the destitute, can have an easier time with this prayer because they have fewer material worries and they're more inclined to pray just for those things that they need to make it from day to day and then give God greater glory. Glorification is the second reason to pray and it's simply giving glory and praise to God because God is so good and he deserves all the accolades and worship and attention that we can possibly give him. This type of prayer, it's still asking fitting things from God because what is it asking? That God get his due. That God get everything that we can offer him. Uh, you know, everything which isn't even going to be as much as it should be, right? But we're, we're limited. Uh, no one except for Jesus and Mary were able to glorify God as much as they could in this life, uh, or as much as they should have. But we still have to try to do the best that we can. That's our struggle. It's not only against the powers of this world, but it's a struggle of what's inside of us. It's against our fallen nature. It's against our desire for anyone or anything other than God himself. It's the third reason to pray. And it's not only asking God for forgiveness, but it's trying to give what you can to right wrongs committed against God. You know, sometimes these are your own sins. Sometimes they're the sins of others. So, for instance, when the Huguenots were on their war path across France and, and Switzerland and other countries, they were taking land, they were taking power from, for themselves, and they were divesting the church of her temporal goods. Uh, they were taking her properties, they were kicking out monks, they were doing all these horrible things in these countries. 
and many churches were desecrated. But what was the response of the faithful in these countries? What did they do? They didn't all sign up immediately to, to join the army and go and fight them. Uh, their response uh, was to have processions, right? Their bishops, they declared days of fasting, days of abstinence. They did penance for all of these people who were doing these terrible acts. They did penance for their country. Uh, their response was to try to appease God and ask him for his forgiveness, to spare other churches and to convert the hearts of these people who are doing these horrible crimes. Now, we're incapable of making up for the wrongs that we do all by ourselves, and this is why you know a, a right doesn't make a wrong. Uh, it's not a matter of, I did a bad thing, so now if I do a good thing, that'll cancel it out. It doesn't work like that in the moral life, uh, because we cannot offer up ourselves as much as we should or even could to make up for that sin. It, it wouldn't be adequate no matter what we did. The only sacrifice that is more than adequate and that can make up for what we've done is the one sacrifice of Jesus Christ dying on the cross for our sins. He is the Lamb of God. He is the true Paschal Lamb. He was slaughtered so that our sins might be forgiven and so that we might live. Uh, if you look at uh, you know, the Old Testament, whenever there's sin, there must be sacrifice. And the Jesus' sacrifice on the cross is the perfect sacrifice offered to God the Father. And we're the ones who join in that. Uh, all of the, the lambs, every, all the oxen in the Old Testament that were sacrificed in the temple, not one of them could remit one sin. But one drop of Jesus' blood could remit all the sins of all the world for all time. Even just one tear of our Lord could do the same thing if he had willed it. But he chose to give, give up everything for us. The lambs that Moses slaughtered, they only saved the Israelites physically from the Egyptians. Jesus' life was worth more than enough as a price to ransom humanity from the clutches of the devil and to save the souls of all of those who turned to him with their whole hearts. Prayers of reparation, they help remind us just how much we need God, just how much we need Jesus, our Savior. They remind us that we're fallen, but that God always calls us back with open arms. These prayers also console the heart of Jesus. Our Lord enjoys the beatific vision in heaven. Nothing can harm him, right? Uh, yet we know that some things would afflict him if, if they could, right? That if it were able to touch him, he would be sad because of man's weakness, because of our indifference to his love and his sacrifice on the cross. And this is where reparation comes in, or we can help make up for that indifference of our brothers and sisters. Lastly, thanksgiving prayers are those where we direct our gratitude toward God for what he has done for us. Sometimes we can see his hand in small and specific matters. Other times we can give him thanks when things seem to be going, you know, everything seems to be going up our way. You know, all things are coming up Father Frank. We can thank God for that. Uh, if the walk's been a little bit easier on our way to heaven. More meritorious way, kind of a, a higher way of giving this prayer of thanksgiving is to also thank God when things aren't going well. Uh, to thank him for what you do have, but also to thank him for giving you a trial. Because without those trials, there's a, there, there's a risk involved. If it's too easy, we become complacent or we can become puffed up. We can think that, oh, we're doing just great on our own. Uh, but all the more trials that we have, the more we suffer, the more we have to look towards God. 
And isn't that a good thing? You know, isn't that God pulling something good out of a bad situation? Uh, Jesus is the man of sorrows, and our sorrows are as nothing when we compare them to his. For he experienced sorrow so much more profoundly than anyone ever could. And he was perfectly aware of everything that there was to be sorrowful for in life. There's a lot of things that we're sorrowful for, uh, but there's a lot more we should be. And we're, you know, we're humans, we have limited intellects, we don't see everything like God sees everything. Uh, and so therefore our sorrow is incomplete. Prayers of thanksgiving, keep us aware of God's work in our lives and they remind us of all the good we have yet to do. The tie-in here is that you can pray in one of those four modes of prayer by using each of the three ways of praying. So you can give thanksgiving by using extemporaneous prayer or rote prayer, or by praying with sacred scripture, by saying them out loud or saying them in your mind, or by reading them and then resting with them. That's the dynamism of prayer. There are so many different ways to pray. And the people with the healthiest prayer lives are those who are able to pray with a mix of all the above. I've seen people who focus on just one experience of prayer. They always experience some sort of setback, and it's related to the way that they pray. So those who only pray ejaculatory prayers, they tend to have a life that's just as inconsistent as their emotions, since that tends to be what's guiding their words. That's kind of what's operative. They're, they're letting themselves just sort of be, be, be blown about by what they're feeling at the time. Those who only focus on reparation can become gloomy if God isn't the one who's putting that on their heart. If all they focus on is the bad and they never focus on the goodness of God, right? It can be easy to become depressed. Same thing with the, the method of prayer. Those who only use rote prayer, they might find it hard to relate to God. They might find it hard to talk to him and really be able to express what's on their heart and to know what to ask for. So have a consistent prayer life, but make sure you're changing it up. You're praying in different ways. You know, your, your approach to God is, is changed, uh, you know, upon what your needs are. This helps to keep prayer fresh, and it opens you up to however God might want to meet you. It might not be in the same exact way at the same exact time each and every day, but if you're trying to, to meet God in all these different ways, he's going to work with that. And he's going, you're going to find him in different ways that you maybe not have ever expected him to come to you. When you take the three methods of prayer, verbal, mental, and contemplative, and you multiply those by the three methods of prayer, rote, ejaculatory, and lexio divina, and then you multiply that by the four reasons to pray, you come up with 36 different basic ways to approach God. Uh, and for every additional method of prayer that you add in, like perhaps reading the lives of the saints or reading their writings or a biblical commentary or listening to a sermon, each different way that you add will add another 12 ways to that basic way, uh, kind of by mixing it up. So there, there's a lot out there. And, you know, don't be afraid to, to mix it up to match. Uh, sometimes it's good to have a, a pattern in prayer and things that you always fall back on. But it's also good to try new things here and there. Uh, so I, I very much encourage you to do that. But now on to adoration itself. Uh, there are sort of eight points, eight different ways uh, or layers of prayer and adoration. And I'll offer you eight different ways that you can pray during this time that are either different or they're amplified 
since you're in the real presence of God, who is present, holy, and entirely before you. So the first way that you can pray during adoration is to let yourself be penetrated with a profound sense of the real presence of Jesus in the Blessed Sacrament. What does that mean? Our God is a hidden God, right? In the Holy Eucharist, he hides under the guises of bread and wine, right? We need faith if we're to see the host for what it really is, and that's God himself. It's the person of Jesus Christ, body, blood, soul, and divinity. Uh, And so the, the easiest way that we can kind of bring that to ourselves is to make an act of faith. You know, back in the day, uh, talking with uh, you know some some old timers, they would say that the nuns made them memorize an act of faith, uh, and it was simply this prayer: "O oh my God, I firmly believe that you are one God in three divine persons, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. I believe that your divine Son became man and died for our sins, and that he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe those and all the truths which the Holy Catholic Church teaches, because you have revealed them." who are eternal truth and wisdom, who can neither deceive nor be deceived. In this faith, I intend to live and die. Amen. Right? Kind of a nice little summary of, of, of the creed, the, the basic tenets of what it is that we believe. And in that becoming man, kind of the, uh, the incarnation and the Eucharist is contained in that prayer as well. Faith is the simplest way to approach God, and it is always needed if you want to grow even closer to, God, to the Lord. God's given us this gift of the Eucharist, and we need his help if we're to understand it, so that what we pray for, uh, so so that is what we pray for, especially if believing hasn't been the easiest thing to you, right? Pray for faith, that, that first way of approaching God. The second way that we should be during adoration is to humble ourselves before him, right? The proud by being proud, what are they telling God? They're telling him by their actions that they're happy enough without him, that they can make their own way. So don't fall into that. Uh, Because on the other hand, the lowly soul will build a nest within themselves where God can make his dwelling, where God will come to be with the humble. They invite God to come to them. And it's those that are humble that become most attractive to the Lord. Uh, And they're also the easiest for the rest of us to be around. So you can see if it's easier for us to be around them, you know, how much easier is it for God to come to them? Being humble gives glory to the Lord as we acknowledge our place before him and the goodness of God's gift to us with his holy presence. You can make an act of contrition. You can make an act of hope and an act of love. Uh, The act of hope is as follows. O Lord God, I hope by your grace for the pardon of all my sins and after life here to gain eternal happiness because you have promised it, who are infinitely powerful, faithful, kind, and merciful. In this hope, I intend to live and die. Amen. And then the act of love. O Lord God, I love you above all things, and I love my neighbor for your sake, because you are the highest, infinite, worthy of all my love. In this love, I intend to live and die. Amen. All right, doesn't that sum it up? You, you only love your neighbor because you love God. You know, it's through loving God that you can love your neighbor even more than you could on the natural level. And it's in knowing and loving God and hoping in him that you become closer to him in the Holy Eucharist as you spend more time to Him with him. You know, adoration is sort of like radiation, right? The more time you spend with God, the more irradiated you become with his love 
the more irradiated you become with his grace and the greater you can be, uh, you know, on fire and a better witness to him, to those around you. Because that sort of radiation, that sort of love, that sort of encounter with God, that'll spread to other people if they see it within you and within your heart. Uh, also in this section for humility, you can pray the litany of humility uh, for those who want to live a life that's closer in closer conformity with Jesus. Because as God, of course, Jesus could just come, thunder, lightning, stars, uh, and really overwhelm everyone with all the power that he has. But what did he choose to come to us as? You know, a baby in a lowly manger. It's the first time the world saw him. Uh, was pretty much helpless. Uh, he relied on Mary and Joseph for everything. Uh, pretty incredible that we have a God who doesn't have anything to prove to us except for his love. The third way of praying at adoration is to reflect on the mystery of our Lord's life or upon the virtues which he is modeled after in this sacrament. These detachment from the world, meekness, humility, obedience, charity, and resignation. Those are kind of the big ones that pop out. Even though the Holy Eucharist is Jesus' resurrected and glorified body in heaven, you can still think of all he did in his incarnation. Right? Any of the mysteries of the rosary centering on his, his birth, his life, his death, and glorification, all of them are perfect fodder for meditation in his presence. You can think about Jesus journeying through Galilee. You can think of the healings that he performed, his miracles, or simply what it would have been like 2,000 years ago to have been in his earthly presence. But now realize that you have that same presence in front of you in the sacred host, except it's amplified. He's present to us in an even greater way than he was 2,000 years ago. If you want to better meditate on the virtues of Jesus, pick a passage from the Gospels and ponder our Lord's actions and words. As I said before, let it simmer, right? Mull over these things. What does this mean? And since all the virtues are connected, you can actually meditate on any aspect of Jesus's life and you can direct your attention to any virtue from any point in his life. Since Christ possessed all virtues completely and all of them are present in every one of his actions, uh, just lots of connections there with, with, uh, with virtue and his action. You might want to think about Jesus' detachment, for instance. So uh, Satan offered him all the kingdoms in the world, yet our Lord would not bow to him for any prize of any size because it wasn't right. Only Jesus is Lord. Then the connection between that passage and the virtue of detachment is easy to see. The world held no lures for Jesus in his temptations. But you can also try to figure out, well, where else did, do we see detachment? Maybe not so obviously. So maybe we could look at uh, the verses about Jesus driving money changers and the animal sellers from the temple. And we can settle ourselves down and search you know, for, for that detachment. So a place to start would be, well, what is detachment? Right? And detachment is not being allured by anything other than God, that the world holds nothing for you. Although money is helpful in many things in life, keeping the sanctity of the temple more important. And we find that Jesus cared more about keeping the temple as a place of worship, first and foremost, than he did as a place to add money to the treasury. So that is detachment, loving God first and having a poor heart that only seeks the Lord. 
And so you see, you can, you can find any of those virtues in Jesus' life at any point. It's incredible. The fourth way to pray during adoration is to produce sentiments and affections conformable to your reflections. So you direct your emotions. You bring them into harmony uh, with your prayer based on reason. You know, the reasoning, it's a higher function in the brain than your emotions. Your emotions are a little lower in the limbic system. And so with our, our reason, we're able to direct them to where they need to go. Uh, I should also say that prayer can be a couple of different things. It can be effective or it can be affective. Effective prayer means it prompts us to action, right? It takes an effect. Uh, whatever it is that we experience in prayer, perhaps our emotions or perhaps we come to some insight with our intellects, uh, might put this conviction on someone's heart that they need to do something else. Maybe, you know, go out and do a little more charity to, to the poor. Affective prayer refers to a type of prayer that stirs our emotions to match what we're meditating on, what we're praying with, what we're thinking about. Uh, the fourth way of approaching God tries to take control of our emotions and point them in the proper direction. Our emotions, they're not always aligned with the sensical or the logical, but emotions tell us something, right? And we can look at them, but we should never let emotions kind of take the reins in our lives. We should always have reason be what's leading us and guiding those emotions as well. Rational thinking is what tempers our emotions. Affected prayer uses our higher thinking capabilities to steer the heart where it needs to go. For instance, reflecting on the passion of our Lord should stir our emotions of sorrow, gratitude, horror, guilt, or contrition can be any or all of those things and even more. That isn't to say it's all we feel, but those are, tend to be the big emotions that come out when we think about the death of our Savior. When our emotions match our prayer, they're in line with proper reasoning, right? It's okay when you're thinking about the passion of our Lord to become sad because it's a very sad thing, the sacrifice that he gave for all of us and the love that he showed us. And when our emotions are in line with reason, they can help guide us in the right direction to take better actions, to feel more of the emotions that we should, and to be more aware of the Lord's subtle promptings in prayer. You know, it's, it's not all about emotions. Emotions are a big part of our daily existence, just as humans. Uh, but we need to make sure that our reason is in control. And it's only then that our emotions help us. Otherwise, people led solely by emotion, they become emotional wrecks. And they can be led all over the place. Because the devil can also incite emotions within us to distract us, to divert us from the proper path. Sometimes they're good emotions, and they're to make us think, oh yeah, I'm doing the right thing, even if you're you know, really not praying. You know, he wants you to keep doing the wrong thing, so he'll see that positive feedback. He wants to encourage you in doing the wrong thing. Uh, so you always have to be thinking, what am I feeling? Is this matching my prayers? Is this matching what I'm going through in life? Uh, and that can help you to avoid being taken on a ride. To draw the best sentiments from prayer during adoration, we should make an act of spiritual communion. It's been in our bulletin for, for quite a while now. Uh, but God is there as the host. Heaven is being with God forever. And we should want that now. Right? Even with the proper disposition, Catholics are limited to receiving Holy Communion just once a day. And it's generally only clergy who at times are forced to receive more than that. However, I have some great news for you. That there are no limits on the number of acts of spiritual communion 
that you can make each and every day. All the time in the day is open to you to do those. Because spiritual communion, it's born from that desire within us of not wanting to wait any longer to receive Jesus in the Holy Eucharist. Those who know how much they need God's strength, those who want to root out fault in their lives, they know that they need God to strengthen them within their souls, right? And God is present to the greatest degree within us after we receive him in Holy Communion. So how great is that, to have that desire to receive him more often? The spiritual communion is simply an ardent desire to receive Jesus in the Holy Sacrament. The saints were careful to make uh, a spiritual communion seven, several times a day. The method of making it is by praying the following. My Jesus, I believe that thou art really present in the most holy sacrament. I love thee and desire thee. Come to my soul. I embrace thee and I beseech thee never to allow me to be separated from thee again. Or a briefer version. My Jesus, come to me. I desire thee. I embrace thee. Let us remain ever united together. Some holy men and women, not wanting to be separated from Jesus and wanting to get as many graces as they could from the Holy Eucharist, they would make over 200 acts of spiritual communion each and every day. Their minds were always going towards God. And what a fervent spirit that these souls had. What a hunger they had for the living God. And what a great time for us during adoration to let the Lord know how much you want to be with him, how much you can't wait until the next time that you're together, that you're joined in that awesome way through the sacraments of the Holy Eucharist. Jesus would never deny a soul who wants to go to him so much and long for him that much. Uh, and spiritual acts of spiritual communion can get you like, almost just as many graces as receiving Holy Communion itself. Almost. The fifth way of praying during adoration is to make acts of thanksgiving, reparation, and consecration. Those who thank God the most after communion or in his holy presence are the ones who will reap the greatest benefits from their prayer and any time they spend in adoration. You know, you don't want the time you spend with our Lord to go to waste. In making a thanksgiving, what are you doing? You're thinking about all the things God has done for you during this time. You're going over all the graces he's given you, right? It's another way to bring to the forefront, you know, to sort of look at yourself again. What do I need? What more do I need from the Lord? What more can I give to the Lord? Uh, it's a great time to do that. Reparation is always necessary, both for yourselves and for others. Reparation consoles the heart of Jesus. His disciples could not stay awake for just one hour when they were in the garden, when he wanted their company the most. They left him. They slept. An hour that you spend will be an hour where you can make up for what was lacking in others. You can even make up for what was lacking in the apostles by your attention, by the time that you give to the Lord in adoration. Included in consecrations are different ways for you to give yourself back to God. You can consecrate yourself to the Sacred Heart of Jesus or his Blessed Mother or one of the saints. No matter what saint you choose, or maybe the Blessed Mother, know that you're always consecrating yourself to God. It might be through that saint, but always you're giving yourself over to the Almighty. A consecration during adoration is a consecration that's done immediately in front of God. So it's going to be more binding, and it's going to uh, be more of a perfect consecration, because you're going to give more of yourself in those moments where it kind of 
you're open to God, God opens you up even more, and you can give even more of yourself back to him. Uh, it's, it's quite a beautiful thing. That means more of God's grace and help is poured out upon those who are being consecrated in the presence of the Holy Eucharist. The sixth way to pray during adoration is to recommend fervently to God the intention of the sovereign pontiff, the interests of the church, the conversion of sinners, of suffering souls, the agonizing, your families, your friends, and especially the society for the propagation of the faith and all Eucharistic works and associations I haven't mentioned here. You know, even if our intentions aren't as good as they could be, God still pulls the good out of them. So it's important to always pray for the intentions of the Pope, even if that's kind of not really what's on your heart at the time. The church is infallible and immaculate, unlike her members here on earth. And so the church, as Christ's mystical body, always wants what Christ wants. When we pray for the church, we're praying for Jesus's intentions. Because recall that Jesus prayed as well. Uh, think about the Gospels, how Jesus prayed for different people at different times. He spent entire nights in prayer. When uh, he told St. Peter that Satan had requested that he sift St. Peter like wheat, and the Lord prayed for him to strengthen him, right, to, to lead his, his sheep. So Jesus always wants what's best for us. And if he chooses to answer certain requests through the hands of the church, then it's best that we're praying for those interests of the church. Sinners should be converted. If they don't convert and they're in a state of mortal sin or they're unbaptized and they're outside of the church, then they risk going to hell the longer time that they wait to get with, back within the church and do the right thing, right? Because we're made for habit. The more we do the wrong thing, the harder it is to do the right thing. Uh, a life spent kind of working against the church, don't expect the person to have this conversion at the very end uh, because they're, they're building, not really building themselves, they're, you know, setting themselves in vice, and that's, you know, setting them up for failure in the end. Even sins no one knows about, except for maybe the person and God, they still affect everyone in our species. We're all humans. We're all connected. Uh, and we pray for sinners that they might turn from their wicked ways so that the path to heaven might be easier for them and that we might all walk the path to heaven together. Suffering souls in purgatory cannot help themselves, so they rely on our prayers to open the gates of heaven to them and end their time of pain and cleansing in purgatory. Those agonizing in this life need to know the relief that Jesus offers them. If their trials are too harsh, they might falter, they might become discouraged, they might be too much. So it's good for, to ask God to relieve the agonizing since it's praying for those who need help to overcome trials as much as when we have our trials. We'd like people to pray for us as well to help get us through. God has put our families and friends closest to us because we're called to love each other the most, uh, at least on that natural level, the, the most proximate to us. Those bonds of love also call us to lift each other up in prayer since God has invited us to love the most those who are closest to us. The propagation of faith is tasked with spreading and providing for the upbuilding of Catholicism around the world, but especially in places where Christ is yet unknown. And what a great thing to pray for, that others might come to know Christ as you know him, or even more so, provided that you're as holy as God is calling you to be. Let's work together to fill heaven. And let's work together to tell everyone the good news about Jesus Christ, 
and what he's done for us. Since you are praying during this time in front of the Eucharist, it's also good to remember all those groups that encourage all these devotions around the Eucharist and adoration. Pray that devotion to God might continue to grow and everyone will return thanks and praise for the greatest gift in the world, which is the Holy Eucharist. The seventh way to pray in adoration is to form some good resolution. Think about where you want to go, where you want to be in life, how you want to be closer to God, and what that means you have to do. When you're praying in God's presence, you're in a better position to hear God speaking in your heart. You're in a better position to let him lead you, right? So kind of go with that. Uh, Make a nice resolution to do something that kind of might challenge you spiritually to, to go deeper, to be a little more pious in one way or another. Uh, You can be sure that God will encourage good resolutions when you do spend that time with him. It's also a good time to make uh, better resolutions for yourself, because when you make them to God, God's going to hold you more accountable, right? He's going to help bring them to completion, uh, but you've done that in front of God. You you sort of have who you're you're making them to right in front of you, uh, and that helps to focus the mind, and you can always go back to that. It'll always remind you, no, I, I, I told God I was going to do this, and when I was with him, you know, I, I need to do this. I need to follow through. The eighth and last way is to make an act of thanksgiving to our Lord for the graces received during the hour of adoration and to try to carefully preserve some of that thought, some of those holy resolutions or tender se- sentiments that he's given us during that time. Always thank God for what he gives you. A thankful heart will never become bitter. Asking God to preserve something from adoration within us is asking him that our time together might not end, but that the gifts that he gives us, we might in turn give to those around us, and that that time together might go on forever, uh, that we might have to leave his Eucharistic presence to do something else, but that we have this abiding sense that God is still with us, God is still working within us and still there. We're to receive the graces God wants to give us, and we must do our best to use them for the benefit of ourselves and all others. Taking those graces with us means that we can share them with our neighbors. And what a great thing that is to do. Uh, after retreats in seminary, many times we would share graces, how the Lord touched us in those retreats. And you know, doing that, once again, it's calling to mind the good things that God has done for us. And you can do that during each day. You can do that after a whole. You can do that after kind of a little, a little set amount of time. Uh, just think of all the goodness that God has shown you, and it'll keep you keep you directed towards him and on the right path. Now I'd like to just go over a few general rules during adoration. And what's going to make sense of everything that I'm about to say is the biggest guiding principle of adoration, and that's God is always first and foremost. Nothing takes precedence over Jesus and the Holy Eucharist when he's out and exposed to us. Uh, because during that adoration, uh, he shouldn't take a back seat to anything else, even if it's a pious uh, exercise or some other prayers that you're doing within the church. Uh, we should always keep that focus on the Eucharist itself. Part of keeping God at the center is keeping a spirit of silence during adoration. You can agree with other people. You can make a plan. That, you know, okay, 20 minutes in, we're going to say these prayers together. Uh, but you shouldn't impose this on other people. You shouldn't sort of catch them unaware. Uh, that you're going to be praying this prayer together. You should also be aware of your personal volume if you're just praying alone. You can, uh, it's fine, you can say your prayers out loud, no problem. But 
they should be in a tone where other people can't hear you, right? If you can hear your prayers yourself, then God can certainly hear your prayers too. Uh, so really, it's keeping that, that volume nice and low for other people who are around. Part of silence is no talking. Whatever God has to say to the person next to you, it's more important than whatever you have to say to them. Right? God speaks to the heart, and we have to be quiet if we're to hear what, he is, what he's actually saying to us. Remember to always show proper reverence to the host. When passing from one side of the church to the other, and you have to cross where the Holy Eucharist is, you know, usually on the middle altar, uh, you know, dead set in the center, uh, you should always genuflect and sign yourself with the sign of the cross. Uh, you can also, it's an older practice and, and more pious, the double genuflection. You go down on two knees and, and sign yourself. Um, because this is a time where God is completely open to us. And it's always, we're always acknowledging that presence of, of him right here. If you're wondering why the priest makes so many genuflections at Mass, right? it's whenever he's uncovering and covering the chalice. It's always when the presence is open to us the priest makes a reverence. When he opens the tabernacle, he reverences the presence that's open to us. And during adoration, that presence is always there. That presence is always completely open. Uh, so it's even more so than at a lot of other times when we're praying. Uh, whenever entering or leaving the church, uh, you should, or exiting the pew, make sure you genuflect uh, before getting into your pew. And when you're leaving, uh, genuflect right when you exit the pew. Uh, kneeling is the best body position to pray with during adoration. It helps focus the mind and reminds the soul of God's greatness and our lowliness. Now, some people can't kneel for all that, uh, all that long, but still, you know, wh whatever you give to God, he's going to appreciate. Uh, whatever you give to God, he's going to accept. Nothing that you do gets wasted, uh, any of those signs of reverence that you make to the Lord. Another thing to think about is one should not turn his back directly on the monstrance, uh, that's you know where the host is, uh, but turn sort of obliquely. And that way they avoid uh, turning their back on him completely. And you don't have to you know, walk backwards facing the, the front of the church as you're exiting. That's, that's weird. It's distracting. Uh, don't do that. Uh, but if you're walking down the center aisle, what's a little thing you can do? Hug either one side or the other. And that way your back isn't completely too Jesus in the front. And so it's another little way you can remind yourself that, that God is here. You can show other people that respect that you have and that you know, respect encourages respect. Uh, and so you can help their prayer. You can help their devotion. Maybe they have a hard time believing that it truly is him present on the altar, but then they see your actions, right? They see your piety and they realize there's something here. I don't really see it. And you, you can help other people to believe by those, those small little actions and acts of love that you can give back to the Lord. Uh, to piggyback off that idea keep, of keeping God as most important, make sure that you're never that guy. Uh, don't do anything that's going to draw attention to yourself and away from Jesus. Uh, if you're the only one in the church, then fine. You know, go fully prostrate, extend your hands up in the air, uh, do what you think you have to, uh, but be careful when you're not alone. Uh, to not become a distraction to other people by doing out-of-the-ordinary things, especially if you have company. The focus should always be primarily on Jesus in the Most Blessed Sacrament. So prayers like Stations of the Cross are permissible, but you modify them. Uh, so the Stations of the Cross are used to kind of going around the church to each station and making a, a prayer at each, thinking about a different aspect of, of our Lord's crucifixion, 
and that path and that road there and all the sufferings he experienced. Uh, but instead of going around and moving around, what do you do when the Blessed Sacrament is exposed? You stay in your pew and you keep kneeling forward. Uh, you can go in some old prayer books and they have modified stations of the cross for you to do while you just remain at your pew. Uh, and so you're still, you're still praying the prayers, right? You're still focusing on our Lord's passion, but you're also keeping uh, adoration. You're keeping the Eucharist primary. Uh, and and that's, uh, that's the way that a lot of those prayers have been designed to be, well, that's why they're modified the way that they are. Another rule of adoration is to never leave Jesus alone. If the church has adoration for multiple hours with the doors scheduled at every hour, uh, and if the person after you doesn't show, you, should, you have to stay. You have to pray for that extra hour or until someone else does show. Uh, it can be quite a sacrifice if you sign up for maybe a, a 2 to 3 a.m. hour in the morning. you got to stay a second hour. Uh, but, you know, the apostles, they, they, they left the Lord alone, and we, we don't want to ever do that again, right? We want to make reparation for all those wrongs done to him. And it's another little way. Maybe God, by that person not showing up, is inviting you to spend more time with him, you know, and, and what a gift that is. It might not seem like it at the time if you're tired, but you think about it, pray about it, thank the Lord for it, and great things can happen. So an ending thought on the structure of the holy hour is to talk half as much as you listen to God. That means a good ratio of silence to active prayer would be two to one. So 40 minutes of quiet, if you can do it, and 20 minutes of you know, some sort of active prayer, whether it's Lexio Divina, whether it's rote prayer, uh, whatever prayers you want to pray. Uh, this isn't set in stone, right? It's, it's always movable. But it, I think it's a helpful hint for making the most out of your prayer time. You know, we have two ears and one mouth, so we should listen twice as much as we talk. Uh, it helps you to go in, also to go in with a plan. Uh, but be prepared to modify that plan. Don't say, I'm going to do these prayers at this time. And you know, Well, maybe God wants to meet you in a different way. Maybe he's calling you to do something else. Maybe you think of someone who really needs some prayers, and you need to offer that time in a different way for this other person. Right? Have sort of a plan so you're not just spacing out and getting distracted, but be willing to modify that plan too in, in case the Lord's calling you elsewhere. Some people have told me that Fridays are really hard to do a holy hour on because it's the end of the week and they're tired. My response has been and continues to be, that's the point, right? You're tired. You need to rest. Rest in the Lord. Be rejuvenate, rejuvenated by the Eucharist and his presence. Uh, it's a very kind of low-key hour where you can just be here. Uh, so go into the Lord's presence. Set your worries before him and rest in him. That's why it's there on a Friday night. You know, leave all the distractions behind. Uh, leave the busyness of the work or your fears for the next week, just for that time that you can spend with him. Let re God recharge you after the week that you've had. And all you have to do is show up, right? It doesn't even have to be for the whole hour. Whatever time you can give back to God, he'll accept and he'll bless you for it. So uh, God, God bless you all, love you and keep you. Uh, for those who wish to, I'm going to do some questions now. And then if there aren't many questions, I will give the blessing. And then I can show you some of the stuff that the priest uses during adoration. If you want to stay, I'll explain the different, different articles that we use. Uh, I know the pews are hard. You can stand up if you want or, um, you know, it's up to you. But uh, does anyone have any questions before we move on? Sure. 
so the, the question is during adoration, is it proper to leave before the hour? Yeah, that's fine. As long as there's someone else there, right? As long as you don't leave Jesus alone. There are indulgences attached to it. So if you can do a, a, a whole half hour, right, then there's an indulgence attached to that uh, as long as you satisfy the other conditions as well. And there's an even uh, greater indulgence for a full hour if you, can, if you can pull that off. Once again, you get credit for everything you give to God. So as long as there's someone here, you, know, you, can, you can come in, even for five minutes, right? Even if you just want to get the blessing at benediction at the end, you know, come in for that and then, and then go. You know, it's, it's, it's no problem. As a guideline or a goal for how much time to devote each day to prayer, it depends on your life. It depends on the obligations that you have. So St. Teresa of Avila, she didn't think it was possible for anyone to make it through this life without praying at least two hours a day. She thought that that was the minimum, right? And well, it's coming from a sister. So they spend a lot of time in prayer, a lot of time before the Blessed Sacrament. Uh, But even for all of us, right, to turn your heart to the Lord, to carve out some time uh, and to make sure that you're giving it up as a sacrifice to him. Uh, You can always add a little bit of, you, you can finagle a lot of things in your day here and there. Even if you have a set work schedule, uh, you can get up a little bit earlier, right? And then when you get up a little bit earlier, that's your sacrifice too. You're a little bit more tired than you would be. So there are all different ways to add prayer into your day or maybe devoting, you know, an hour of your day, just kind of turn whatever thoughts you can towards the Lord. Uh, but you, you should be intentional about it and you should have good quality prayer time. So if your prayer is, well, I'm active, I'm, I'm working, uh, you know, therefore I'm going to give the next hour while I'm working to the Lord. Like, fine. Uh, but you should also make sure that you have some deliberate prayer where you're actively engaging the, the faith and God is your only focus. When you're working, you're focused on your work. But prayer, you should be focusing on God primarily. So, um, but once again, whatever you want to give, you know, God will accept it, and it p- depends where you're at as well. You might want to start off with just 10 minutes a day. Uh, or if, uh, yeah, and just kind of go from there. Um, there's also the prayer of the church, the breviary. So all, all of the religious, all the priests in the world, we all made promises and vows to pray certain prayers at five times during the day. Uh, and the big ones are morning prayer and evening prayer. So if you were to get like a breviary and, and add that, to your day as well. That can be a nice, it's usually about seven minutes for each if you have um, kind of like the shorter version of it. Um, so yeah, you, you have a lot of, you have a lot of options. It's kind of wherever you're, you're being pulled. But I would say, I'd say for someone who's working, they should aim for a half hour, at least a half hour and, and build up if they can. Yeah. So, and if you pray something like the rosary, right, it's the rosary is just an awesome prayer. Um, probably outside of the mass, it's the second, <laughs> you know, it's the second most powerful prayer that, that we have. Um, and that will take up, you know, about 20 minutes. So it, it can be pretty easy to, to, to get the half hour. Yes. Yeah, yeah, you can absolutely, uh, with regards to praying the rosary, you can start it, and then if you don't have time or, or something interrupts you, then you can go back to it later. 
it might be a little bit more powerful for you to, you know, try to not have those distractions, but you know, it's life. Sometimes things happen. And in that case, it's okay. Uh, same thing with falling asleep during the rosary. When you get up, you can finish it. Uh, but it just don't fall into that. There's that old saying that the angels will finish the rosary for you if you fall asleep. Well, uh, maybe they do, but they get credit for finishing it. You don't. You only get credit for what you do. Yeah. So what are some strategies for getting your mind captured and distracted? Mm-hmm. Are you mindful if you're scrolling the whole time? Mm-hmm. Yeah, strategies against distractions. Distractions, they happen, they can happen to anyone, right? Uh, a lot of it, as I said before, preparation can count for a lot too. If, you, if you're setting, settling yourself beforehand, then you're going in in the, in the right way. Uh, having a plan will also help. Say, if I'm going to get distracted, I'm going to go right to, you know, the Bible. I'm just going to start reading a passage. So having a plan kind of like that. But the... I think the best way of dealing with distractions is to remember why you're praying. It's for one thing, God. So if you can, and our minds, you know, hunter-gatherer, we're used to brains. We're used to one thing at a time, and we're used to focusing. So if your mind is cluttered, if your, your mind is going all over the place, go back to Christ. Focus on the Lord. You know, fill your mind up with God, and then you'll find that the other things can, can melt away. Uh, and it, it'll take time, it can take effort. Sometimes it's really, the distractions can be just really overwhelming. But, uh, you know, persevere. Work, work through the distractions and, and, and work towards that focus. It should, uh, you, you do get better at it. And then, of course, you know, the, the devil or your own fallen nature finds other ways to distract you. But then, you know, just keep working at it. You know, whatever comes up next, just go with it. Don't worry about it. Just Deal with it as it comes. So I, I hope that I hope that helps with distractions. Any other questions? May the blessing of Almighty God, the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit come down on you and remain with you forever. Amen. Amen.